This morning I'll be reading from 1 Kings 21. Uh, 1 Kings 21, 1 through 29. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in, Je in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it, or, if it seems good to you, I will give you the value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise, and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they said to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In this place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. For the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin, and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. 
Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Ammonites had done, whom the Lord cast before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. The word of God, the people of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Thank you, Fred, for leading us through what I know is a long passage. Friends, perhaps this is our first test together as a church. Can you stand for six minutes of scripture reading? And we have passed. Uh, well, first, I want to say a particular uh, thank you to you all who have been praying for uh, my family and I. Uh, the past week has been um, very difficult uh, with my mother-in-law, uh, um, sad to say, being taken from us. Chan has passed. Uh, we've been blessed by your support uh, and would continue to uh, love your prayers in the weeks and months to come. Uh, please pray uh, for us as we grieve, um, though we are certainly lifted up with the confidence that uh, Jan knew our Savior well and is in glory with him now, having a far better worship service than we could have together this morning. Uh, relatedly, while I would normally be uh, probably more uh, cheerful and outgoing than I am this morning, and would love to spend more time uh, getting to know you all, and I am eager to do that, we have to get back home fairly quickly today, so uh, I'll need to leave shortly after the service, but I am looking forward to the time that we're going to get to have in the future. Uh, with that being said, we are stepping in very briefly, uh, as I did last time, to a book you all have not been in, which is the book of 1 Kings. Uh, this is um, a book that is devoted to illustrating how and why God's people had to leave the land that God went to all this trouble to give them after the Exodus, why they were being sent into what was an extremely painful exile. And the book reveals over time and through even the second book of Second Kings that it was because of the people of God's ever-worsening sin. They're turning away from God to try and find uh, fulfillment and hope and stability in some place that it cannot ultimately be found. And in that, I just want to offer that these people were no different than you and I. They were looking for something to make life good, to make life comfortable, to make life feel steady and predictable and secure. And they were looking for it in something they could do. That's what idols were about. You could do something with an idol. You could do something with sacrifices. You could make it happen. And yet we also see in this book God working in power to draw his people gently back to him time and again, not just through gentleness, not just through words, but through the display of his great power in comparison to the power that they were seeking from all these other things. And he does that in particular in our story today through the voice of the prophet Elijah. 
Uh, and this passage that we're going through today is not like the infamous passages that you might be familiar with in 1 Kings, where Elijah at Mount Carmel calls down fire on a completely drenched sacrifice to prove to everyone that God is God and Baal is not God. But today's passage does not deal with God's miraculous intervention. Rather, it deals with God's justice and his surprising mercy in the face of what we can see in this passage are violent injustice, greed, abuse of power, and the like. It's one of the darkest passages in all of Scripture. If you're not a Christian and this is your first time with us, I would just say buckle up. Sometimes Scripture is pretty real. It's not just flowery language. It deals with the brokenness in our hearts and in our world. And our passage points us to a hope of a God of both justice and mercy. The two things that I think we're going to see in our time together this morning that our hearts really deeply want. We want both of those things. So to explore God's justice and mercy in this passage, I want to turn our attention to three things. First, the oppression that we see. And if you have your Bibles, have those out with you. If you have a Bible app, uh, feel free to have that out as well. We're going to go back through the text. But first, we're going to look at the oppression that we see in verses 1 to 16. Secondly, we're going to look at the justice that we want in verses 17 to 24. And finally, we're going to see what happens when justice and mercy meet in verses 27 to 29. So the oppression we see, the justice we want, and what happens when justice and mercy meet. But before we get into those things, would you pray with me for just a moment and ask God to bless our time together. God, we humble ourselves before you now, knowing that we come in this morning with all kinds of presuppositions, all kinds of expectations of who you are, how you ought to be, what you should be doing, why this and why that, and yet we want to come and acknowledge that you are God and we are not. You know the deepest needs of our hearts. You know our joys and our triumphs. You know our pains and our failures. Father, you know these hearts this morning, though I cannot but you are the one here, we believe, that will speak. So we ask you, Father, would you speak? Would you open our ears to hear? Would you soften our hearts to feel? And would you give us a transformation of our hearts that we may leave having met with you and been changed? It's in your Son's name and by your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Well, again, we are going to start in the beginning here with the oppression that we see in verses 1 through 16. And I want to unpack some of these things for us because it's a little bit disorienting and confusing on its face. The passage begins with what seems like a very harmless request by Ahab. He says in verse 2, essentially, sell me your vineyard, Naboth, or trade me for it. Right? I'll, I'll give you one that's equivalent, better, I'll give you some money for it. It seems like a harmless request. We buy and sell things a lot. We buy and sell property a lot. My wife and I are trying to figure out how to buy some property here, right? These are common things. So it seems like when Naboth responds in verse 3, like, pump the brakes. Like, what? why this huge overreaction? But his response, I believe, starts to give us a clue that what Ahab is asking was not a harmless request. In verse 3, Naboth says, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of 
my fathers. And more literally, in the Hebrew, it says something like, it is a profanity before God for me to do this for you. A profanity before God. And it's not that selling things was profane or was even forbidden in the Old Testament. It was allowed, as one commentator, Peter Lightheart, explains, but generally only as a last-ditch effort to avoid crushing life-ending poverty. This was a last resort to sell the land that you had, was a last resort to not die. And it was done even only for a limited time until a, a better-off family member could buy the land back for you or until every 50 years, what was called the year of Jubilee, when all debts were canceled and any land that had been sold was returned to your family. Because the land that God gave each family, when he brought them out of slavery in Exodus, in Egypt, he gave specifically to them for all time. Again, the land was only to be sold in cases of crises, for a time, and even if it was sold, it was to be brought back. This was always meant to be something that belonged to them. Something that stayed in their family for generations to generations to generations. It was a tangible expression of God's care for and remembrance of them. It was meant to be a tangible place where you could wake up and go to sleep day in and day out and remember that in this place, God remembered me. He did this for me, and in this place, I remember Him. It was meant to be a place of remembrance, a marker of God's faithfulness to them and to the watching world around them. So, this clues us into the fact that the land was not meant to be treated lightly. It was not meant to be just traded as a commodity. It had a special purpose. It had a higher purpose than that. It was something that we could say was meant to be stewarded, not owned. The land was meant to be stewarded and not owned. Not rearranged simply to suit desires as if God hadn't thought hard enough about which family should have which land, about what should go where. As though they were owners of the land rather than stewards of the gifts of God. Naboth seems to recognize this. He seems to get it. He seems to get that he is called to be simply a steward of these things and not an owner. And that to sell his family's land presumably the text gives us this clue for all time, to this king, which verse 25 calls possibly the worst, most unfaithful king that Israel had ever had, that to do that would be a profanity before God. It would be completely abhorrent, unthinkable, impossible. He could not do this because he saw himself as a steward before God, not an owner. His life his possessions, his land, his inheritance, all these things were not something that he saw as his alone. Rather, he and they belonged to God. Who was he to say that God had made a mistake? Who was he to say that the way God had given was not the way things should be given? Who was he to say anything back 
to the God who had remembered him, to act like an owner, to treat the things of God so lightly, to have so small an appreciation for the intentionality of God in the things that he gives to us. It would not be right. And so we see Naboth saying, the Lord forbid that I should do this, that that it would be profanity for me to do this as an act of faith in a God who is greater than him. That saying no to this king in particular was an act of faith that would require faith because you would have to know with someone as bad as this that there would be consequences for acting like a steward instead of an owner. And there certainly were consequences. If we look at verses 8 through 15 now, consequences for Naboth trusting God more than the king that was in front of him. Because the king's wife, Jezebel, sets in, plan, uh, sets in motion a plan to kill Naboth and to take his land. And what I want us to see here is just how devious it was to do it like this. Because this was a use of the law to commit injustice. This is not a hit. This is not an assassination. She used a legal means to rob this person of his land and to take his life. Let's look at how this happens. In verse 8, she writes the elders of Naboth's town, Jezreel, to collude with her in this scheme. She gets them on board. She asks them to bring two witnesses to bring a false charge against him. And that's important because in Old Testament law, it required two witnesses to convict someone of a crime. She is doing this by the books. And what she wants them to do is not make up some complete falsehood, but to just twist Naboth's words a little bit. Instead of saying it would be a profanity before God for me to give this to you, she wants them to twist his words into saying something a little more like, Naboth profaned God and cursed the king. That he spoke profanity to God. That he spoke profanity to the king. You can imagine if you're Naboth sitting this charge, you're thinking that that's not what I said and it's also not that far off from what I said that I can really completely just get back on this. And such blasphemy against God, to, to commit profanity against God, to curse the king, was prohibited in Exodus 22. It was seen as a rebellion against God, as setting yourself up as a rival to God, a rival to the king. And so these things, when you would do this, came with a capital punishment. That's what stoning to death was. Leviticus 24 points this out for us. Stoning to death, I want you to see in this passage, this is not mob justice. This is the equivalent in our day and time of something like a chemical, uh, a lethal injection or the electric chair. This was capital punishment being visited on this person for setting himself up as a rival to the king. And she does all that while sitting him at the head of the table, at the head of the people, when all the people are gathered together, verse 9, she is visually setting him up to look like a rival to the king, as someone who sees himself as important, as above everybody else, as at the head of the table. So when this charge comes out, they don't just hear it, they see him as this person. You could imagine being this community and thinking, what arrogance, as they stoned him to death. And 
we can see the deviousness of this, and yet we may not still see the depths of just how wrong this was. It's not just a manipulation of the law. This is an unraveling of all that God meant the king to do in his land. The king was charged in Deuteronomy with upholding the law and upholding the rights of the people, of protecting the people, of being a tangible expression of God's goodness and protection. They were charged with saving life, with helping, and yet they break that law. They break the Ten Commandments so many times here, it's hard to even count. Let's just walk back through this a little bit. They break the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbors. Go to Deuteronomy 5. What does it say? One of the things is field. You shall not covet their field. That's what Ahab is doing here. He's already starting off by breaking the Tenth Commandment. They break the Ninth Commandment to not bear false witness. They get not one, but two. They tamper with the witnesses of the court. They break the Eighth Commandment. Do not steal. They co-opt or at least manipulate a town's elders to, to conspire to steal from one of their very own people and betray them to death in their very own town. They break the Sixth Commandment. Do not murder, convincing a town that they are duty-bound to kill a man who is actually innocent, setting both him up to die and them up to now have an innocent man's blood on their hands. They killed someone wrongfully. They break the third commandment, falsely using God's honor, his name, as grounds for legal execution. And for the sake of time, I have left out a few of the others that they have also broken here. When we come through that, it's an astonishing display, I think, of manipulation, of oppression, and abuse of power, all just to get someone's land all so that the king could have a vegetable garden, right? so that Ahab could have a little better diet, so that he could have a little bit more convenience. This is the consequence for faith sometimes. I want to be clear with this, brothers and sisters in the Lord, that faith and being faithful to God, living life as a steward of the things he gives us, and saying no at times to those that would ask us to go against him, may come with painful consequences, with gross injustice even. I want you to hear, if you are not a Christian this morning, that there is no promise in Christianity that your life will get easier. It will get better, but it will not necessarily get easier. There is a cost for living a life of stewardship. You can do everything right like Naboth, and you can still suffer injustice for it. It's the kind of thing, when we see this, that makes us cry out for justice, for something to be done. And this brings us to our second point. We move into verses 17 to 24, thinking about the justice that we want when something like this happens. We want the bad guys punished. We want wrongs to be made right. We want, in some sense, the Avengers to show up and just crush everyone. And that's kind of what God lays out in verses 21 to 24. It says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. Skipping to verse 23. And of Jezebel, the Lord said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city 
the dogs shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. God does not say things like this almost ever. This is an extreme judgment coming down on them. There is no sense in which God is mincing words, in which God is just sort of tiptoeing slightly around what they did. God in this moment is announcing that justice will come, it will be done to them, it will be finished. There is no chance that anyone from his line, anyone who would be like him, will ever get to do what he did. That God will bring injustice to an end. And hearing that, Though it is dark, though it is visceral language, we can't help but feel a small amount of relief. That God is not going to let this continue. He's not going to let this go on forever. He is not going to let them get away with it. Justice will be served. We yearn for that. We, we feel relief when that moment comes in the story. And I think that's interesting because if you ask anyone on the street, what kind of God do you want? Most anyone in the West would say, we want a God of love who doesn't judge. A God who is a live and let live, gentle kind of God. Now we want that until something like this happens to us. Until it happens in our town, until it happens in our country, until it happens to people that we care about. Imagine this happening to your family, to your brother, to your sister, to your father, to your mother. Doesn't it just make your blood boil? When things like this happen, we want justice. We demand justice. We feel it. We need it. The picture of an easygoing God quickly fades out of view and we forget that God. That's not who we want. Our heart's response to this text, I think, betrays the fact that what we've told we, ourselves that we want, a gentle God, a kind God, a God who never judges, maybe never disagrees with you, never pushes you beyond where you want to go, is not the God we want all the time. The truth is we do want justice sometimes. We demand it sometimes. We want things to be made right. And we want a God who is going to do that. I think the truth is we like a God of mercy when it's God looking over my shoulder when it's God paying attention to my faults, to my sins, or to those of people who think like me, who look like me, who talk like me, who come from where I come from. But we want justice when it's God looking over their shoulder, at those people, at someone who has done something to me. We crave justice for their wrongs. And the truth is, something like what happens to Naboth here is an outrage. We should, the text gives us no sense that we shouldn't, we should feel outrage that this would happen. God's response shows outrage that something like this would happen. We crave justice for wrongs, and yet if you're human at all, you shudder at the idea of a righteous God judging your life with it as an open book before him. 
when the point of justice turns toward us, we can't help but deeply long for mercy, for grace. What I want us to see is that the reality is that whatever our culture may have sold us, our hearts know better that we want not just mercy or justice, we want a God of mercy and justice. We want both. We know at some intuitive level that we need both. And yet if we want both, why should I get mercy, but they get justice? On what basis do you and I get mercy and they get justice? Is it because I'm a good person? I'm not like Jezebel or Ahab. Are you so sure? Have you never, ever stepped on the little guy to get ahead? Have you never pushed someone weaker aside out of your way to get what you want? Have you never manipulated circumstances to get an outcome just a little more favorable to you? Have you never presented something to someone in a certain light, not giving them the full disclosure of what you want because you want to just swing them towards you, even if you know it might not benefit them? Have you never taken something by scheming, by bending the rules, bending the laws just a little bit? Listen, it is tax season. You all know. You see those little red numbers on TurboTax and you think, Lord, how can I move these laws to benefit me? You might say, okay, okay, fine, fine. But I am not Jezebel. I am not Ahab. I am not that bad. And I would say, praise God that you are not. Society would be chaos if you were. If each and every one of us was as bad as we could possibly be, there would be no life. There would be no living and maybe you are not as bad as they are right now, but I want to ask this question. Have you had the power that they had? What would Jezebel and Ahab's sin look like with the power that you have? With the power that I have? What would their hearts look like with the power that you or I have? Have because the reality is oppression, injustice like this, the formula for it is just sin plus the power to make others suffer for your sin. It's that simple. It's not something more grandiose or more complex than that. It's sin and the power to make others suffer for that sin. So what's different about Jezebel and Ahab is not just the gross sinfulness of their heart, and it is gross and tragic, What's different about them is their power to make someone else suffer for it. So if we take that power away, if we set it aside so that we have equivalent power, so that their power is like ours, they are no longer rulers, they are students, they are consultants, whatever they may be. If we were equivalent, would their sin look more like ours than we would like to admit? Because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 explains there that someone who is just angry with their brother, who calls them an idiot. Kids, I don't know, have you ever called your sibling an idiot? It's okay, I'll, I'll raise my hand for you because the truth is probably 
Yes, he says that if that's true, then we are guilty of wanting to kill them, to hurt them in our hearts. He's showing us that the seeds of oppression are in here too. They just haven't had the same light, water, heat, substance of power to let it grow into full-blown oppression. And if the seed will only grow up into the plant, if the acorn of sin will only grow up into the oak, then that seed, that acorn, that kernel has to go too. The seeds of injustice in us have to go too. I just want to suggest that perhaps you and I hunger for justice for Naboth, for punishment for Ahab, in part because we don't recognize that we are more like Ahab and Jezebel than we would like to admit. We don't recognize that if we want justice for them, then we also, to some degree, must want justice for ourselves as well. For the seeds of injustice in our hearts to be rooted out, because under the right circumstances, they will only become something much worse. The answer has to be justice for them and for me. As Dr. Martin Luther King so wisely said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. If injustice is in here, it is a threat to justice everywhere, no matter how small it is. If given the right opportunity, it will grow into systemic oppression. It will grow into segregation. It will grow into slavery. It will grow into disenfranchisement. It will grow into steamrolling into another country because I want to. Unchecked, the seeds of oppression will grow, and that is a terrifying conclusion. We know that wrongs need justice, and we are right in that. But when we stare at justice for ourselves, maybe the first time, maybe for the first time, we, we realize, we pray that wrongs get not just justice, but hopefully mercy too. And this brings us to our last point, verses 27 to 29, and what happens when justice and mercy meet. Again, we want justice for Naboth. We want punishment for Ahab, and rightfully so, and yet we also reasonably shudder at the idea of justice coming home to roost for me. We long for mercy. We long for justice. How can these things hold together? I think our passage shows us some of that. It shows us a complex, dynamic mix of what we know we want, of justice and mercy. It shows us justice in God standing up to the bully, standing up to the oppressor, God condemning and promising to punish Ahab and Jezebel in terms that, again, are virtually unmatched in all of Scripture. You have to do a lot to get God to talk to you this way. And yet when Ahab does something so small as just be sad about the fact that he has made a huge mistake, God promises to show him, him, some mercy. Him. He relents a little bit. He even points out to Elijah the goodness, what? The goodness of Ahab in verse 29 humbling himself 
a little bit. He doesn't point out the goodness of Naboth. He points to Elijah the shock of the goodness of Ahab. This should shock us and confuse us and not just Elijah. Listen, God does not save Naboth who never receives any condemnation in this passage. And in fact, God's explicit, powerful condemnation of Ahab shows us just how righteous and good Naboth was, that it deserved this kind of response, and yet God does not save him. And he shows mercy to Ahab. What? What is going on? This this seems like just a huge puzzle. Why would God do this this way? And some of the frustrating part of Scripture is that the text does not give us an explicit answer. If you are looking at times for an exact picture into the way that the mind of God works, Scripture is not there to give you that picture. It's there to give you God. And that is much more than just an understanding of a blueprint of how God works. And yet maybe you're facing that kind of situation right now. My family's been sitting in that situation this week. Why does God show no mercy here and yet He lets someone else live? He lets someone else go their own way, do terrible things. Maybe you're sitting in that situation right now. Why isn't God showing justice here? Why isn't God showing mercy here? And I just want to lovingly tell you there are going to be times where God does not give you the answer. And yet where He still promises to give you Himself but I believe there are things in this text that can help us in those moments because if you haven't faced it, you will face it. And you may face it again. Why does God do things the way He does them here? Why does He show no mercy, no salvation for Naboth and get mercy to Ahab? One of the things I think we can tell without a doubt from this passage is that the man who was most truly at risk here, the one who really needed rescue, was not Naboth. It was actually Ahab. The man that was truly at risk of being torn away from God forever, the man who actually receives mercy, who receives a reprieve, a delay of judgment, was the one most truly at risk. Ahab. Elijah tells him as much in verse 20. He says, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab did not recognize what was going on. He thought he was the one buying and selling. He was the owner. He was the one in charge. God tells him through Elijah, listen, you are the commodity. You are what's being bought and sold. You don't even know you are on the auction block. You have no clue. It was to the one in danger of the greater loss, not the loss of an inheritance, not the loss of his earthly life, but the loss of his immortal soul. It's to that one that God shows mercy. God lets the innocent man die. He can let the innocent man die because, and I want you to hear this, death is no danger to those who trust in the Lord. 
That is the bedrock hope of Christianity, that death is no danger to those who trust in the Lord, that death could not take something from Naboth, that the Lord could not give back a thousand times over. Death is no danger to those who put their trust in the Lord. Naboth's soul was safe in the Lord's hands. He had an inheritance that Ahab could not touch. See, I think we see that God lets the innocent man here perish because he was actually safe. He was home already. And he shows mercy to the wicked man as someone in greater, truly unrecognized danger. God's heart is leaning out towards the one who doesn't even know they are falling into their doom. And in this, God makes Naboth a precursor to Jesus and Ahab a precursor to you and I. Because Naboth was a man who called out for God's law to be kept and who kept it himself, but who was falsely accused and killed out of jealousy. Likewise, Jesus called out for God's law to be kept and kept it himself and was falsely accused of blaspheming God and being a rival to the king at that time, Caesar. Go to the Gospel accounts. Look at Jesus' trial. This is what they accuse him of. Blasphemy, of being a rival to the king. He was killed by his own people out of jealousy outside the city walls as a capital punishment, betrayed by the very elders of his own people, his clothes even being torn from him at the end. And like Naboth, he goes to his death without rescue because though he was dying, he was not the one in danger. I was. You were. We were Ahab in the greatest danger and having zero idea that we were selling our souls into destruction. See, we who have the seeds of injustice in our hearts receive mercy and live because Jesus did not, because he was punished for all of our injustice at the cross. He takes that punishment there, and when we put our trust in Him, when we are united to Him by faith, when we call Him our King and put our hope in Him, in that moment, His death becomes our death. He who knew no sin, who sinned not at all, takes on Him the entirety of our sin, that there the justice of God might be done, that there the justice of God might truly come home for everyone who ever trusts on Him, so that God may truly be just. Our confession says, as we just read this morning, that on the cross Jesus Christ descended into hell. I want you to see there is meant to be an equivalency between the cross and the punishment of hell. That God is saying that you may either bear this burden through Jesus Christ and live, or you may bear this burden by yourself and face eternal death. That it, Jesus touched bottom for you and I. If you are in Him, you touch that bottom of punishment too. It came home for you. I want you to hear. The text wants you to know. Scripture wants you to know. Justice will come home. How will you face it? Because in Jesus Christ, God has also made a way that you and I might face justice and not be crushed and not perish because at the cross mercy comes home to you and I too 
we receive forgiveness. Even the worst of us find forgiveness because even the worst of us cannot stand up to the grace of God. Amen? Even the worst of us cannot stand up to the goodness and kindness of God. Even an Ahab in our world is powerless against the mercy of God. However bad you have been this week, however bad you've been in your life, you cannot stand against the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, we find that mercy too. We find forgiveness where our sin is truly punished, where God is truly just, and yet at the same time, we find mercy because we are forgiven in Him. He took it that you and I may live. Christ is how justice and mercy meet. He is what Naboth is pointing forward towards. He is how our deep desire, our craving for justice is met, and yet how you and I can find justice and live. He is how we receive mercy without justice being ignored. This is the hope that our hearts long for, a God of justice, a God of mercy, a God who can do these things for us. This is Jesus Christ. Knowing this then and coming to a close, how should we live differently? What should we do in light of having this justice and mercy meet us? I want to give you two things to do practically different in your lives this week. To first, have a steward mindset, and to second, have a more concrete faith in the God of Naboth. First, have that steward mindset. Live like a steward in your life this week, not an owner. Acting like an owner is only going to lead me to a life like Ahab, where I sell my soul for the smallest passing thing, where I rage over it. That's more literally what the text is saying, not just vex. He was between raging and depression. That's what happens when we live our lives like Nabal. When we center our lives around something that's not God, we vacillate between raging that we don't have it and depression that we don't have it. Give up having to be an owner because when we get to be a steward, we can ask the owner for help. We can ask God for help. We don't have to be the one that carries it all this week. You have a Father in heaven who delights to carry your burdens for you. Lean on Him. Ask yourself this week, where am I acting like an owner and I don't need to? Is that with my school? Is that with my kids? Is that with my parents? Is it with my friends? Where am I living like I own this and it's all on me and I do with it what I want or I fail and it's on me? And where can I live like a steward? Where it depends on God. And secondly, have a more concrete faith in the God of Naboth. If you never have, extend into that belief. Take hold of it. Let God be your God for the first time. Let Him be the one of justice and mercy for you. And whether you've already made that profession, whether you've made that decision or not, put your weight on it in the same way that you are putting your weight on these pews. I want you to put the weight of your life on God like if you do that, it will hold you. Try to do that more concretely this week. What do you need to let go of to do that? What are you bracing yourself with? Your achievements? your hard work, your effort, your goodness, what are you bracing yourself with? Let go of that just a little bit and put your weight on Him. Because you can entrust your circumstances 
and even the worst consequences for your faithfulness to this God. What's the worst that can happen now to you if you are in Jesus Christ? Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to reflect in your own prayer, invite you to thank God for the ways he's shown you mercy, to confess the ways that you've lived like an owner, to ask God to more concretely anchor your hope in him. Take a few moments and pray, and then I'll close this. God, we thank you that you are good, that you are a God that is what the fullness of our hearts want. Thank you that you don't just give us what we know to ask for, you give us what we need. So as we come to your table, prepare our hearts to receive what we truly need, you. It's in your name that we pray, amen.